0: You're listening to the podium here on 88.3 Southern FM, and we're joined now with a six-time Bathurst winner. He is an iconic driver and team owner from the Australian Touring Car Championship. It's the one and only Larry Perkins. Larry, how are you going today?
1: Hey, good morning, mate. And that's a was an owner, not anymore.
0: What's that? Was. Well. Was an owner. (laughs) Well, still doing a lot right now. Now, Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been very good with your time, so really appreciate it. I want to talk about your early career, though. First off, first of all, how old were you when you realised that motorsport was a dream for you?
1: Well, the, the motorsport was a dream from the moment I ever drove anything when I was on the farm, and uh, but it always that was I'm talking sort of four, five, and six, but years old, whatever. But you know, uh, uh, I never thought it would well, ever realise it till. Uh, I got to around uh, eighteen and nineteen. I thought I know how to do this. Get get down to Melbourne. Get off the farm, you know, the family farm, and uh, and and show you, display your your so-called skills, you know. And and I bought a race car.
0: And how old how old were you when you bought your first race car?
1: I was actually nineteen. Uh, I just got nineteen, and uh, I bought a, a Formula V, which is the lowest form of mechanical activity that you can race, and. Uh, i went to the south australian track of malala i remember it very well in about the november of 1969 and uh uh proceeded to think how good is this because you know, i was a young bloke who saved his money i didn't smoke and things like wasted so i could afford to uh and i'd been working now for about four years so i would saved my money and and started going racing
0: fantastic let's take you back to 1970 of course yeah you competed in the formula ford championship Fifth place position. Tell us what that was like, your first proper full year full year in motorsport.
1: Well, uh, it was fantastic because I had only done about three or four months in my Formula V, which got me into the 70s, and uh, I started sort of winning the Formula V races, and the Bibb Stuhl team had a, a vacancy or got a second car mid-season, so I joined them about mid-1970 uh, and uh, 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 joined their existing driver called Richard Knight, who uh went on to win the uh championship and uh i don't know where i come but i know in my very first couple of races i got under the lap record and i was starting to get seconds and i I think i might have won even one race in the first year but i thought this is just so good yeah and then uh, stayed the next year 71 and uh
0: won the championship yeah now tell us about the move to europe because not too long after that you moved over to europe of course What 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 was that like for you
1: well, uh, the Ford prize for the winner was this trip to Europe and uh, I thought this is just fantastic to get to Europe but to be honest, I had no money at all uh, and uh, I thought, well hang on, I'll stay in Australia another year I uh, uh, and I did the Australian Formula 2 Championship, a friend of mine uh, Gary Campbell, uh, the late Gary Campbell uh, uh, offered me his Formula 2 car and I won uh, uh, 8 out of the 9 races in that and won the Formula 2 Championship and Meanwhile, took a job with Harry Firth to drive his uh, uh every now and again one of his touring cars was Bondy and brocky and uh I kept saving money and so by the time the end of seventy two came I had a few bucks in my back pocket, secured a loan car from the elfin uh factory for Formula Ford to take for the world final in England and uh I headed off and I thought this this is a pretty clear clear path for me, yeah.
0: Yeah, now, you know, talking about moving to Europe, it's a massive thing, even for race car drivers now, getting the finances in order to do that. And you were quite successful very very early on as well, especially in the Formula 3 championships in Europe and, and the British Formula 3 championship. Talk us through those days.
1: Well, that's right. I, I got to the World Championship of Formula 4 in that first uh, year at Brands Hatch, and I ended up... Uh, uh, Third, I think it was. I was, pretty, I was pretty happy with that result, and uh, but then I did Formula Three the next year, and uh, I recall I did all the tracks of Europe, and uh, ran as obviously as a privateer, and I lived out of my truck. And but my first trip to Monaco, you know, the, the great famous Monte Carlo, uh, I uh, uh, I was fastest on the very first. Uh, um, practice day uh, in, in 1973 and I recall having just as big a ride up as Jackie Stewart who was in Formula One so, so I'd never been to Monaco before and the old French journal I thought it was pretty good.
0: Yeah now I have, to, I have to ask you you've driven on some iconic circuits in your time what would rate as the, the biggest circuit that you've raced on the favourite one?
1: Well, I I was very fortunate to race on the what's called the old Nurburgring, which is a very lengthy. I, I think it's 17 kilometers around, over 180 corners. I raced uh, there in in it. Uh, I even did a Formula One car uh, race there. But uh, I have raced many places now unheard of Rouen, a French track, a Po, another French track, many cars. uh I raced in tracks in Sweden, uh, Knutstorp, and. I raced at Mondra and so on. I, I raced everywhere, Silverstone. Uh, I, I was, yeah, you know, living from uh, uh, appearance money to appearance money, and uh, just getting on with it.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned Formula One. What was the goal early on in your childhood? What What was the career goal for you?
1: Well, I, uh, there was only one goal. It was crystal clear. You got to get in and uh, be world champion. That that was. There was no other goal. Uh, I uh, could have strayed in Australia and done certain things. And I I recall when I was with Harry First, talking to the Bondies and the Brockies, thinking, oh, come on, you can't just be king of the kids. Like, uh, this is... Get over where the real stuff is. And that was my dream. I had no interest as such to dominate or win or race in Australia at that stage of my life. I wanted the real McCoy.
0: Yeah, talk about the Formula One days.
1: Well, it was '74 that Chris Amon, uh, uh, again the late Chris Amon, uh, he, he was starting a new team, and he just left a very successful career, career with Matra and others. Uh, and um, he was going to run two cars, and he had the finance and everything. So I thought, yeah, it's this. I'm 24, my second sort of year in Europe, and. And I'm um, in Formula One, and um, so I did a lot of the testing of the first car. Everything was late, but the Nurburgring, I uh, got to the Nurburgring with Chris was the driver, but he he uh, was too ill from a I think he had a very heavy cold, if I recall rightly. So uh, you drive LP, you'll be right. And um, uh, so I'd, I'd done a, a couple of practice sessions uh, at, the, at the great famous track of Nürburgring and of the day I did it, it finally crashed it though because I went over this hill and it was raining and uh, that was a notorious thing about the Nürburgring and, and we didn't have spare parts etc so we didn't get any further than that.
0: And what was the highlight from the time in Formula One?
1: Well, that was seventy four. I then went back to seventy five. Uh, came coming into nineteen seventy five, and Ron Turena was starting up as uh, the partner of uh, Jack Brabham, of course, and uh, making cars. called Relts, and I was the so called works driver, and uh, I went on to win the European Formula Three Championship that year. And uh, we, again, I did all the famous races of Europe, and those drives uh, got me back into the Formula One scene. Uh, uh, with uh, a private company called uh, Dutch Company which ran uh, British Formula 1 cars in Signs and they went broke uh, after amount of, a certain amount of time short amount of time but um, my, to this day my second race I ever did was the uh, Belgium Grand Prix where I come 8th outright so I was pretty wrapped with that and then I think I had 6 or 7 did not finishes in a row from mechanical problems and teams going broke changing teams I, I then uh, went to Bernie Ecclestone's Brabham for the last three races of that uh, year, and um, I couldn't keep my seat into the new year for commercial reasons. Uh, martini and Rossi didn't didn't sell any Martini in Australia, and they wanted uh, you know, a proper name driver and so on. So it then become the decline of just not being able to get it. But I was pretty happy with my Monza uh, race in Formula One uh, in, in in terms of the qualifying. I qualified 11th. But the two works lotuses of Gunnar Nielsen and Mario Andretti. I just ran as a privateer, just myself and two mechanics, apprentices, and uh, uh, we we were very happy with our result there, but the engine blew up in the race, so we didn't get anywhere.
0: Now, in your time at Formula One, of course, it's known around the pit paddocks now that it's kind of hard to establish relationships with other drivers, but back in your period competing in the sport, did you manage to form any relationships?
1: Well, yeah, I did. I mean, Gunnar Nielsen uh, was was a good mate of mine throughout the Formula 3 category. When, when I won the championship, he was at all the races that I was at. So I got to know him, and he had just got a gig with the Lotus Formula 1 team. But you tend to uh, socialise around the guys on the grid. Emerson Fittipaldi was a good guy, got on well with him. Uh, Jody Schechter, another, another guy I got on well with... Uh, I didn't really, uh, I, I weren't at the top end of the grid with the Nicky Lauder and James Hunt at that stage. Uh, so I didn't really know them very well. Uh, uh, but the other guys uh, down the back, uh, yeah, that's, where, that's where you got on with and uh, had many good time with those guys, yeah.
0: Do you have any funny stories to share from your time over in Europe?
1: Oh, God, eight years there. <laughs> But uh, eight years of uh, the early days, as I say, living in the truck or hand-to-mouth wondering when you're going to get the next dollar and so on, there's many, many stories there. But, uh, but you know, I was always a bit uh, unknown to many and uh, uh, I went to the Brazil race uh, and they had a push-bike race for the drivers and all drivers thought they were pretty good on push-bikes and they were well-known, but they'd never heard of me and... Didn't expect me to pull that one off. I won that race, beat all the Jackie X's and the Mickey Rowders and everything, a race around the, the circuit. And uh, But look, uh, there's many stories I've had, but uh, too too many to go into here.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. Nah. Now, you mentioned some iconic circuits that you got to race at. Another iconic uh, event that you got to take part in was the 24-hour Le Mans, and you got three appearances there. Talk us about your time doing uh, the Le Mans 24-hour.
1: my first time was in 78 when I uh, uh, was really at the end of my open wheeler career. I did a couple of Formula 2 races and a mate of mine was running a Porsche there, so he wanted me to drive. So I did that. We come second in what's called the IMSA category, uh, second, which is a class win. And uh, I, I didn't then go back to um, Monza, uh, pardon me, to uh, Le Mans to uh, 84, which I did with Brockie once I'd come back to Australia, and then 88 in the uh, Jaguar, Silk Cut Jaguar, we got fourth outright, uh, um, a tremendous track, and 88 was the last year they ran it with the uh, superb back straight with no chicane, so I was very happy to be there and uh, know that I was hitting that 400 kilometres an hour down the back straight, and at one stage in the rain, so that was memories that I don't forget very quickly either, I might add.
0: Yeah, some great memories there. Now, I want to talk about your decision to come back to Australia. How, how did that come about?
1: Well, various, uh, a bit complicated. I was running out of uh, options in England. Uh, the money was coming in, and you know, how much money can you bring, and uh so I did a couple of Formula Two races, and I got to about '79, uh, uh, and I was really I did a race in Japan in Formula Two, and it was all over the shop. All, all yeah, not really any focus. And uh, I, and uh, Ron Turek, who I was working for, wanted me to become legal in his company, and I so I applied for my passport to be legal, and. Uh, Uh, At the time, they were assessing my passport, which was a couple of weeks. Uh, My dad fell off a motorbike and broke his uh, leg. And my passport came back saying, hey, you've got two weeks to leave the country. Uh, So I thought, oh, I'm over all this. I'll get back to Australia and uh, see what I'm going to do, you know. And uh, so so that's what I did.
0: Yeah, now, you came back, of course. I did a few seasons, I think it was, in the Australian Endurance Championship at the time and uh, then established Team Perkins. Talk about the decision to establish your own team.
1: Well, I I started uh, running Brockies uh, HDT, I think it was called, then uh, running the workshop, I should add. I ran that for three years, 82, 83 and 84, and so I had a very clear understanding of how the touring cars of Australia worked, and I was uh, uh, very annoyed with the system that wouldn't allow... Uh, up-and-comers, really, to access the right machinery. The cams uh, system was very broken then. Uh, you know, unless you're a Brockie or Moffat, uh, there was no disrespect to them. They just followed the rules, but you sort of couldn't get the right bits as such. And uh, I decided to leave Brockies once he brought the polarizer on, and uh, I knew I wanted to start my own team, and uh, I wanted to uh, fix some of the things that were stopping many new drivers coming into the system you know so i spent then many years with my own team but fighting many political battles to get you know access to the good the correct parts you have parts have to be freely available tires have to be available etc all the things that made a difference and that started the real growth of v8 supercars
0: yeah definitely now you mentioned working with peter brock now Great track record, of course, with Peter Brock, of course, winning Bathurst in 1982, 83 and 84. Uh, tell us about your memories working with Peter Brock and winning Bathurst for the first time.
1: Oh, pretty special. Um, I mean, I, I knew Brocky before I went to England in the seventy-sixty-nine, seventy. 69, 70, As I said earlier, I worked with him at Harry First. So we got on pretty well. And uh, when I uh, had uh, finished... Uh, uh, to Bathurst before Brocky asked me to join up. I'd got a second and two thirds with Peter Jansen. Um uh he he wanted me to, you know, be co driver and I said that oh, I didn't worry, I'm not too fussed about the driver bit, but I'll I'll run the workshop for you, which uh you know, which was more my passion because my dream of driving I thought was totally over and uh so uh, I was almost a reluctant co-driver to Brocky, but still, still happy to do it. And in those days, don't forget, I never did any other races. Then i just done the Sandown Bathurst, and I knew how to win races. Just, you know, hand the car back to Brock, look after machinery, run that properly. And that paid off very handsomely for uh, the H D T team.
0: Yeah, talk about that dominant era. Like I said, 1982, 83, and 84, winning the great race consecutively. What was that like? Having a car, you know, well, performing so was, well. Yeah,
1: it was pretty good. And I recall uh, saying to the crew and Rocky, and we were only a small crew then, six or seven people. Say, so look, guys, this is a very easy race to win we just have to do everything right we have to finish we have to drive it within our limits you know the competition wasn't as strong as it is today by a long long shot so uh and i uh didn't have any ego to you know outsmart brocky in any way shape or form and and so we got on very well there you know he liked he liked the limelight end of it and he was very good at that i might add and uh, uh where he left give me a free hand to run the mechanicals of it uh properly and uh uh, and I learned to run a business where each year we had to we made a profit which I I, I don't think that had been done before in Brocky's uh, uh race car world so um yeah I learned all about it but the bit pick up a win and then another one and then another one uh it was getting pretty good uh yeah so I mean I had had six batters then, with uh, three wins uh one second and two thirds so uh I thought this was all pretty good and uh I said earlier, I then left mid um, '85 and uh, wanted to start, You know, I had a real taste for it during car racing by then, and thought this is what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite a story, really. You know, and you look at the list of co-drivers that you've had over that time as well. You know, you're working with Dick Johnson as well just after that period. What was it like working with so many iconic dr- race car drivers?
1: Well, none of that sort of phased me because I had sort of come back from Europe where I was, you know hanging around the top end of the town of drivers with names, you know, the in races that they were in, as I mentioned, the James Hunts and the Nicky Lowthers and the Jody Scheckters and the Emerson Fittipaldi and that. So I just thought this is just, you know, re- pretty routine, just get on with it. Uh, each of those guys that I worked with were all individuals. Denny Holm, a fantastic guy. Uh, 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 he, he drove with me and my team there and... Uh, he was an ex-world Formula 1 champion. Um, what The common thing is everyone wanted to win a race and uh, we all had specific jobs in, in whichever team I happened to be with and I really never got involved in politics or anything with any of the teams or people I had, in, had with because we all were very focused.
0: Yeah, now one name that is very familiar with motorsport fans in this country is Tom Walkinshaw, of course, owning a Formula 1 team back in the day and then, of course, Walkinshaw Racing. What was it like working with Tom Walkinshaw?
1: Well, I I didn't have a great working relationship with him because uh, I was going to... uh, um, I ran the, the, whatever it's called, Walkinshaw Racing in its very early days on a short-term contract a couple of months to Sandown and Bathurst and then I think it was the same again next year and uh, I always wanted to have control of the team and... uh, Uh, When I started seeing that uh, I I weren't going to have control, or interference was happening, uh, when when we went to uh, Bathurst one year, and Walkinshaw had brought his own car out from England, which I didn't even know about till it arrived. uh, That was things that I'm thinking, "Well, hang on, I don't need any of this politics." And uh, uh, so we very uh, we didn't have a great uh, relationship. you know, I, I just weren't on the same page as he was in on, on how you're on a race team. And, uh, uh, yeah, so we he, he, Tom's last race he ever did was Bathurst with me when he insisted on taking over Denny and I, his car. Denny and I had got it to lap about 140 and very much in a position to win it. We, I think we just had to do a routine pit stop. But Walkinshaw, uh wanted to hop in, which he did, and um, the engine immediately failed, uh, We were telling him on the radio that he can't do the revs that he's doing. We were monitoring that, and uh, and the engine broke. So it it didn't end in in, uh, too much champagne.
0: Mm. Now, a few years of uh, driving then with Thomas Mazira at Bathurst, and then 1993, a lot of people will remember the iconic Castrol Commodore that took part for a number of years. Talk us through the, the race win in 1993.
1: Well, that was a, a unique year for many reasons. One is I got a phone call early on the year from Castro, wondering whether I'd run a couple of cars at Bathurst. They were about to dump the Holden race team as their main sponsor, which uh, was upsetting Holden. So uh, Holden, um, uh, uh, you know, was a bit decided then they wouldn't sponsor me because I pinched their sponsor, so I had no Holden money. And uh, they also brought in, uh, they wanted to bring in the Chev engine, which I was very, very anti because, yeah, it meant more money to spend that I didn't have, and uh, so I fought those decisions in the boardroom, etc. And um, then, uh, you know, we could finally get to the race. Um, um, I, I was short of money, uh, I had to run two Castrol cars, and I rang the chairman of Castro up and said, Look, can you let me off the hook? I only can run one, and he said, Yeah, no problem. And the Holden man, uh, who was giving me a lot of grief uh, over money, I, I rang him and needed a top-up, and he said, yep, no problem, get on you know, get on and win the race. And that was under the cloud of arguing with against Holden to run the Chev engine. So to get up there, it's only Holden with the Holden engine against all the Chev's of the Freddie Gibsons and the uh, uh, Holden race team. But to get pole position and pull that win off, and then in my own team, I tell you, that was the sweetest one of all.
0: Yeah, and what was Greg Hanstead like as a teammate?
1: Oh, Greg was fantastic. I, I followed Greg in a 12-hour race, must have been the year before uh, I drove a one-off drive with somebody's Lotus, and I uh, followed Greg for a long time. I thought he's he, every, he was just precise on everything, so I said to him, look, if you're looking for a Bathurst drive, give me a call, and uh, we got on really well. Greg was a, he, he was truly a, a superstar on his motorbikes, but... You would never know that by talking to him because he's an unbelievable, uh, humble guy. And, uh, yeah, so we just got on really well. We didn't... Again, we weren't a high-budget team. We we didn't even have special overalls for uh, uh, to wear because uh, yeah, they were just more money. But uh, Greg did everything perfect. He had no ego to try to beat me or me beat him or whatever. He just fitted in, did the job, handed it over, and obviously he'd come the end of that... Uh, weekend uh, he was
0: just as happy as I was yeah now talk us through 1995 now a new teammate and lots of our fans of course would know your new teammate a, a very young Russell Ingle talk us through that year 1995 and then one of the most incredible Bathurst 1000s I reckon for you of course he had a lot of dramas during the day but managed to come back and win talk us through that
1: Yes, the uh, I mean as you know Russell was a, uh, a win uh, Greg unfortunately was uh, killed in an accident in pile Island that year. I had to get a new guy and Ingle had been to Bathurst once before and uh, I thought he's he'll, he'll do the trick and we'll get him on, on the pace and we were on the pace. We were third if I recall right on the grid uh, somewhere about third or fourth and um, or might have been even on the front row but into the cor- first corner Craig Lowndes was on my inside my left hand side and he moved quickly to the right and hit his front wheel onto hit his exhaust pipe onto my front wheel and pulled the valve valve tit out the, other, the rim and i turned the corner uh, and going up the mountain street i immediately knew i had a flat tire um, i immediately knew uh, that that's what would have been wrong and i said to my crew you know, get ready and i I fought every emotion in me not to hold the race car flat and, which is what many drivers do and damage the car with the tyre shredding and so I disciplined myself to get back to the pits without damage to the car and the tyre disintegrating and we calmly fitted a new tyre and then both I and Russell had to drive every single lap at maximum revs, maximum braking. Everything was on the limit, 10 tenths. And uh, we had to pass every single car to become winner. And as you know, that's exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, my good story is, unfortunately, Glen Seaton's bad story where he was leading and he was the last car for us to pass. And uh, he his pace was... I, I was struggling to catch him. He was three or four seconds ahead of me because his pace was good and he had, had upped the speed of his car. But in the process, uh, the engine broke. So, uh, we got the win and, uh, a tremendous, um, feeling for Russell and I and the team to have pulled that one off because we, we just made no mistakes at all.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think everyone has a soft spot for Glenn Seaton and his, uh, record at Bathurst, but yeah, fantastic to see you guys capitalize on that. Let's talk about 1997 now. Another, another eventful Bathurst race, of course, uh, you had a lot of the leading contenders fall away that year. It was an an interesting year because, of course, it was when Peter Brock had announced his first retirement from the Australian Touring Car slash V8 Supercar Championship Series. Talk us through that weekend for you guys and managing to finish up on the top step of the podium.
1: Well, again, uh, we were perfectly competitive. I, I don't recall the grid position, but, again, it was somewhere right up there. You know, it was uh, second, third or something like that. You know, It wasn't too far back. And uh, I knew how to win Bathurst. first. Uh, yeah, you firstly you got to finish. Uh, you got to finish by having a good team of people around you. They got it all the homework, and this is all the things that I and my my small crew knew. And uh, you mentioned some of the more fancied runners run away. Well, you now they were on budgets ten times what I had, and uh, I, I think it's just it's terrible that a team can make such uh, bad uh, engineering decisions. Uh, but they can't get their car to finish so uh, I was very happy to pass the odd car that uh, uh, parked on the side of the road uh, as I went past I gave them a wave all of course and uh, but we were always um, had a same old game plan don't you know the car's got a mechanical limit drive it to the mechanical limit don't crash it and see where you finish and most of the time you can be the winner.
0: Definitely definitely and then you came back 1998 of course and Another event-filled weekend. Talk us through that one. You came close, though, second place in that one.
1: Well, I can't remember what happened in 98. Uh, you'll have to tell me what happened. <laughs> well, I think all
0: the cars flew off the road, didn't they? There was a few punctured tyres, I think, for a couple of the Holden Racing Team cars. Um, I think Mark Larkin was in with a chance of winning the race as well, and his car stopped on uh, the pit straight. And, yeah, it was yeah a lot of stuff going on, I remember, from that race, watching it as well, a kid.
1: always on. Bathurst are always the same. There's always a lot of stuff going on, and... As said earlier, you had to have a plan that that meant you just stick to your plan, which is your mechanical limit don't exceed, your pit stops, you know what you've got to do, it's because you can't alter what other people do around you. And if your pace is good enough, you can win from the front, but if the pace is not good enough, you got to live with the position you end up in. And, um, you know, uh, um, that was, it's still the plan today. There's not much you can do about it, and... Uh, um, we obviously didn't quite get it, get the pace right there for someone else to beat us, yeah. But anyway, I only remember the wins, not the seconds.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a bit like that. Now, that year as well, you also you came off the back of a win at the Sandown 500 in what was absolutely horrendous weather. I remember being there as a little kid and it was pouring down. Talk us through that race and some of the most iconic races that you've had to deal with in terms of weather.
1: Well, that sand down 500, I know it was wet. And I do recall going down the uh, start-finish line and well into the you know, race. We may have been leading, may not, I can't recall. But I did a 360-degree spin without it hitting anything. Uh, yeah, before I got to the brakes, so at back were flamed. And whew, I, said to, I said to my crew, oh, I've got away with that one um so sometimes uh, you know but again you when you're on the boil uh, as a driver you can control things like spins to a fair degree um and uh but yeah the 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 aquaplaning and the vision they were, it was terribly challenging and uh yeah to to get those wins that style of win i'm still pretty happy with those on the day you can get as much satisfaction as a driver even more when the are horrendous and you can master
0: them. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, I want to talk a bit about so back in the 2002, I think Russell Ingle had announced that the following season, 2003, he was going to be moving to Stone Brothers Racing. After so many years of working alongside Russell, what was that like?
1: Well, it was uh, in some ways, it was, there was some form of disappointment, but at the same time, there was relief because Russell was uh, starting to give me a hard time always that I wouldn't pay him enough money. To <laughs> yeah you know, unfortunately uh i had to run a business and i only had so much money and uh i respected that he wanted to do what he thought was the best for him and part of that was to um pick up a bigger paycheck and uh and look so so he he moved on and and you know i had to move on and uh um yeah the, the sort of the rest is history he he made a good choice by going there he got the money he wanted one assumes and uh you know, the next year I retired from the, the, the scene anyway as a driver, um, it was, the game was starting to change.
0: Yeah, now we talk about a young, you picking up a young driver in Russell Ingle. Another guy that you, of course, brought into your team was a very young Paul Dumbrell at the time. What was it like working for, with him? Because um, I think I recall back in the day he had a few issues with his driving and I think he had to get sent to a driver coach as well. What was it like working with a very young Paul Dumbrell? Well,
1: Paul was like many young guys, he just knew he wanted to go car racing, he wanted to win races, and he was he did have some. he had before he joined me, he'd won had a very successful uh, v eight development series, I think it was. he they called it, he, he won the championship, so he had skills there, but he was having lapses of um, concentration every now and again, which uh, we've all done that, I might add. and. Uh, he chose to uh, head off to England. He'd heard of a driving school over there that may help him. I had no say in that. Uh, he, he, again, he he was the motivator of that, which you can only uh, admire him to do that because it was considered, uh, you know, a little bit considered, uh, you, if you need a coach, you can't be any good. But. After he went, there was a, there's been a great wave of Australian V8 supercar drivers go to see this guy in England. I might add it's an old mate of mine from way back when I was in England, but that's another story. But uh, but no, Paul you know, uh, uh, hung in with me for a long time. At times, we couldn't give him the machinery that uh, he needed, like uh, others that drove for me. Uh, Jamie Wincup drove for me once, but for some reason we didn't. success out of him but that's because I think we weren't providing the right machinery and uh, when Paul won his very first Bathurst uh, I was certainly uh, uh, very uh, early on uh, giving him a congratulating call uh, because he earned every minute of it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, he's definitely gone on to have a great career as well as a co-driver. Now 2003, Larry, it was your final season of course in the sport talk us through how that year played out for you and when did you come to that position where you're like i might give it up now
1: well the years were getting harder and harder to fund uh, i mean the dollar values were going up and we're looking at yeah we have to uh in my little team i was having to raise monies around four five and six million uh, and i'm i'm i had no other pocket to reach into for money and uh, um and yeah you guys were running
0: two I- three cars as well at that point weren't you
1: Oh, well, that was, you know, I, I ran calf car for, uh, under the you know toll banner for uh, Paul Little, uh, for the uh, um, um, young Traddy and uh, they're, they're all money-earning things. We made a lot of race cars. We made 48 race cars in my whole time. We sold uh, made 198 engines. They were all part of what we had to do to earn money so we could effectively go racing ourselves. But... Uh, the crew was getting bigger. I was around fifty-five people then um, managing that, and I I don't didn't have a manager as such. I felt there's no such thing as a manager that can patch match what you want to do yourself. And yes, I got the bathurst, and we were relatively competitive and uh, in practice. But in, but the stewards uh, were arguing with me and the, during practice, while I was on the track, that I wouldn't sign a uh, hadn't signed the indemnity, the indemnity I indemnified V8 supercars and cams against negligence, and I'm arguing on the radio that I, my team manager I'll never sign something like that. In the process, I massively lost concentration and stuck it in the fence, and um, uh, that was a severe blow to the car. It was terribly damaged, and uh, it, I might add, it hurt a bit, and um, I. Um, Made the decision. I, I'd said I always said to anyone: the moment I become the weak link, I'll stop driving. And yeah, that moment had uh, come very forcefully to me then, and so uh, I didn't hesitate to know that it was time to hang up. And because the lives of the uh, and the welfare of the fifty odd guys working for me was and running the business was more important to than me just to be a driver. Yeah, now so th- it was the start of the end.
0: Yeah, now 2004 must have been very different for you, of course, after all these years, you know, being behind the wheel. What was it like giving up the number 11, of course, to uh, Stephen Richards?
1: Different. <laughs> it was different. and uh, uh, But, you know, I, uh, that was life. I had to move on. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't, we had little bits of success with Richo. The and then uh, after Richo the was Todd Kelly. But uh, look, it was a different game and uh, we're now the money added another million to expense and so uh, I, I i was starting to seek how to get it you know i needed to get out of this business because i couldn't guarantee all the things you have to guarantee when you run a business
0: you yeah earn the money yeah now i want to ask you something about the you know the iconic number 11 when everyone thinks of the number number 11 in australian motorsport they think larry perkins is it true that i was reading that You've chosen this number just because it was easier to carry around spare stickers for it.
1: Absolutely true. And I might add, you you didn't carry stickers in the early days. It was a strip of black tape. Mm. So um, it was pretty simple, but that was the reason for number 11, yes.
0: There you go. Interesting story there. Now, I want to talk a bit about your son, of course. Uh, Now, you helped your son, of course, get into motorsport, obviously. Talk us through working with your son and and what, what it was like, you know, having your son involved in the team.
1: Well... There's a little correction there. I didn't help him get into motorsport. He wanted to get into motorsport, and he resisted any assistance that I may have offered him. Really? He just wanted to get into it. and If you like, do it by himself. I bought him a go-kart for sure as assistance, but he would have his own mates or whatever pick him up and take it to the racetrack and so on. Uh, I mean, every now and again I went along, but he wanted it that way. and uh, he, he he had a, a issue of... Um, I always happened to explain to people, that I was there sometimes and people would constantly walk up and say, hey Jack, you know, do you think you'll uh, win as many batters as the old man and he's only seven or eight and the other kids weren't getting that pressure so he had a lot of pressure on him all the time and uh, I felt for him uh, many times uh, that he carried that burden that I didn't have to carry and he had to struggle through that.
0: Yeah, What was it like working for working with him when he when he joined the team for the fujitsu series
1: Well that was all good i mean we get on very well he he and I still work together here in my factory we he looks after a lot of the um maintenance on these old cars that I mentioned earlier and he he loves all that and it fits in good to where it gives him freedom to have time off to uh, drive the the d v s series or his uh or his uh, sports sedan, you know, his Audi sports sedan. He's been driving, or his TV commitments. So he's got it pretty worked out now. And uh, but but look, working with him was fine. But uh, uh, he had a, a very very uh, bad uh, uh, blow to his uh, health in uh, when he was nineteen. He woke up one day with type one diabetes, which uh, to, to any lesser person uh, would have uh, um, you know, effectively crippled your career, and uh, he had long battles with the CAMs to get a license, and so on and so on. So, he, the, from nineteen onwards up to he's had he's had to battle this uh, disease, and um, I just have so much respect that he, he and and of course many others who have uh, problems that they've got to overcome. It, it's just tremendous to see uh, the you know the, the determination that these guys can. Um, you know, fine when when the chips are down.
0: Very well said there, Larry. Now, look, I want to talk about the race at the Gold Coast a few years ago. Jack Perkins, of course, teamed up with James Courtney, managing to win the race. What was the light for you as a proud dad? <laughs>
1: Mate, it was fantastic. I was sitting home with uh, his mother and I we we're we were watching and I went for him to win it. It was a pretty... I think I was more happy to watch that than any happiness I've had in my own Wednesday. It was just tremendous because, as I said, the hard yards that he'd put up with all his life to get into the hot seat, and uh, uh, you know that he, he's to this day he's, uh, he's that stoked about winning the V8 Supercar race. Yes, as a lot of young guys are, but obviously winning his son—that's special.
0: Yeah, he's done a fantastic job as well, like you've mentioned, through all the adversity that he's had to deal with. And very unlucky not to win the Sports Sedan Championship, I think, a, a year ago. Just a bit of unreliability with the car, because he just absolutely dominated pretty much every race that the car finished. I think he won nearly every race, wasn't it, Larry?
1: I think, yeah, the, the, which really goes to show, I mean, this is the back of the cams that I have very little respect for, as you may have picked up uh the the rules are something wrong where you can win I don't know what nine out of the 10 races and you still haven't got enough points to win the championship um uh, you know but, but that's I don't fight these battles anymore it's but it's something wrong and it it was disappointing for him not to pick up one of those championships because uh, they were absolutely dominant race after race after race but one engine failure I think it went and cost him you know uh, some points, and um, he didn't win. And uh, not not that the other winner wrote the points score, but I think he 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 knew that he wasn't beating Jack. And normally, if you're the champion, you should know that you know, you beat everyone else.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now we talked just briefly about it. You leaving the championship, of course, it was just after the mid two thousands. Was it mainly your disagreements with um, the governing body that led to that, or was it just the, the financing of the team as well? Because the costs of the sport have really gone up the past few years. Was it? Which was? What no, was that down I, to? No,
1: I, I was very clear. I mean, I, I knew the the V8 Supercars uh, was a game changer in everyone's racing, in which we started way back in about '97, after numerous aborted. Uh, Attempt, but uh, the V8 supercars allowed us to write the rules and, and I don't have a quarrel with anything to do with V8 supercars. That was fantastic. It was a game changer for everyone. We got sensible rules, we had sensible tyre rules, etc, etc. Uh, the little bit of Cam's influence uh, still came only from stewards and um, so uh, that, that wasn't an issue. The issue was really that, um, you know, i was no longer able to guarantee to my crew that i could finance the team and i was you know needed to get out and um you know uh, anyone who owns a small business would know what i mean and uh so an opportunity came along with the kelly's uh the kelly brothers and uh they brought my team out and so on and um I'm happily out of it you know, without any form of uh, issues and uh, I look at it. I, I don't go to the races as such, but I love to watch them on TV. We we don't uh, always watch them on TV and uh, I, lo- I love going to the Grand Prix and, yeah, it's all pretty good.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Like, um, I also want to talk a bit about the sport now, of course. Like this season, of course, we've seen Simona Di Silvestro in a full-time race seat, of course. You did this, though, for the Castrol Cougars program about 20 years ago. Talk us through the decision... To develop the Castrol Cougars program, of course.
1: Well, we we did a very today politically incorrect thing, and uh, Castrol wanted to sponsor a uh, field of uh, a team of women drivers, which I was very happy to to do. Uh, um, And um, and we tested many women drivers and girl drivers, etc. And they were great. They were good, but they weren't great. And uh, and that's just. The way it was, and uh, I don't know why there wasn't some that can rise to the, to the top. It's certainly not because of any deliberate action of whether it be cams or team owners or um, um, things like that. It's just that we, we can't find girls that are competitive enough. Any Every team going in Australia would love to have a, a, a female driver as long as they can match it at the front. And, um, you know, the, the, the current... Uh, Girl, you're mentioning Simone, uh, I think it is. Um, she, she's pretty close, but she's still not there yet, you know. Yeah.
0: You talk about the series now, you, you managed to catch a few of the races. What have you made of the racing this season?
1: Uh, pretty good. I mean, the last race was pretty good, you know. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> pretty dramatic that very last lap of uh, Lowndes and McLaughlin. But uh, I you know, it would have been nice to see a different winner just out of a ordinary, simple uh, comment uh, and not taking anything away from Jamie. Jamie deserved to be the winner because he made less mistakes. But uh, McLaughlin's a good young lad and uh, his day will come. Uh, he's just got to learn to make less mistakes, and as
0: we all do when we're young. Yeah, now you've, you mentioned that the sport's come a long way since 1997 when the Viet Supercars was formed. Having a team owner like Roger Penske in the motors in you know in the Australian motorsport industry, did you think this would ever happen to supercars?
1: No, I didn't. Uh, I, uh, I didn't think that. But it it, it can't be bad when you got one of America's biggest, um, and now uh, the Andretti one as well coming into the uh, Walkinshaw team. They're they're not bad signals at all. It may make it harder for. Uh, you know, the operations like I started to get into it, uh, meaning, you know, garage-orientated, uh, uh, you know, enthusiasts, uh, probably those days are well gone. But that's just called develop and, and things move on.
0: Larry, I want to talk a bit about now about the future of the sport. So the past few years we've seen um, the big manufacturers wind back their support of most of the teams. Um, you've seen Ford pretty much completely get out of the sport. Holden... You know, minimal support now just for Triple Eight Racing. What do you see as a future direction for the sport?
1: Well, I, I always said way back uh, when we started that we should make the rules. Uh, they got to be uh, e- easy to uh, administer. they got to you know, keep the racing che- cheap because the cheapness comes from the rules. And um, never make sport around manufacturers because when they leave they'll leave when they want to and they'll never ask anyone if they can leave and to start now to alter and what's happened we've obviously got uh, Holden and Ford have both left our sport and if I remember rightly none of them asked us owners uh, if, if they could leave um, so that's predictable so to sort of try to now uh, alter rules to entice other manufacturers in it's 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 areas that we've been over many times in the 80s and 90s, and it's a bit of history repeating itself, I think. Uh, the Car of the Future ap- in- introduction was a disaster. It nearly broke the category. Uh, that was predictable and should not have happened. Uh, the Car of the Future in itself, uh, uh, as in um, certain elements of it, the principle it was good, but the introduction was wrong where everyone had to have one. Yeah, um, you know, to make, uh, try to make a, 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 where a four-cylinder car can be comparable to a V8 and all those things are just, just sheer nonsense and that'll turn into uh, tears for some teams and so on is my prediction. I, I don't wish these predictions uh, to come true, but you've asked me, so I'll tell you. And um, Sometimes history has never, never been a very good teacher to people, especially in business.
0: Yeah, now, what do you think of the role of car racing in, you know, the realms of sport, really? Like, you've got a lot of competition now with other sports taking away, you know, big market share. Um, We've seen big changes in terms of the television deal with supercars and as well as Formula One currently. And like you've said, you know, we've seen manufacturers really take charge of the running of the sport, you know, having V6-powered cars brought into the category. What do you think... Motorsport's going to look like in the future, and what do you think should be done for the future for motorsport in this country?
1: Well firstly i now no longer think about the future because uh, it's a full time job if you want to analyse it uh, carefully to work out what should happen but uh, you can't uh, ever beat simplicity, and uh, part of that simplicity is uh, in in motorsport is you've got to have a competition. Uh, uh, without cars being was competitive with each other, you've got nothing, and that can't be done artificially. That uh, uh, that's the first thing. The rules are what control the uh, costs of sport, and as I've said to many people over the many years, the only difference between my team and the Ferrari team of Formula One is a uh, obviously the budget that's needed, but it's all hinged on what's written in the rule book. Um, so the rules do. I mean rules. Crystal clearly do control how much you can spend, and uh, I think you know, yeah, uh, you know, we we've kicked some enormous uh, good goals since around that 1992-93, where today there's always multiple uh, chances of win- winners. Even though uh, Jamie's dominated, that's just because he's right on top of it. But we've had lots of young blokes now, competitive. They had lots of different team owners. They can access a competitive car and so on and i just hope i don't see it go to where you've got to be one of the chosen few who selects a manufacturer properly to be a competitive team and that if that is ends up being the case it won't be a good uh move forward that's for sure
0: yeah definitely definitely like um and as well you know we've you know discussed it today with the spiraling costs, of course, you know, since you've been involved in the series, you know, you've got talk now of looking to try overseas options once again and, you know, a a whole range of different things. If you were the CEO or the chairman of the supercars, you know, the supercars, what would you be doing? What do you reckon you'd be doing for the sport? Because I, I as a fan personally, you know, growing up with the sport as a kid, I used to love watching big, full-size, you know, 40 cars on the grid you know seeing privateers you know people with really low budgets be able to punch above their weight you know get top 10 results at the mountain and stuff and that's the thing the sport has kind of evolved to where you don't get any of that any anymore what do you think is you know what what that's, would you be doing if you're in charge
1: well that that's right uh um you don't see that anymore and uh i doubt whether you'll ever see it again um the, yeah some of the rules um still can be cleaned up. Uh, I still can never understand why if you've gone down a lap at Bathurst under a pace car, you can't pass the uh, pace car to get your lap back. Um, you know, the guy who's, uh, you know, three-quarters of a lap behind can catch up, but the guy who's 1.1 behind can't catch up. So that's for the long-distance races, but uh, they've got, a, in my view, uh do whatever the fans want. The fans should be the greatest driver of the success of the sport because without fans, you've got nothing. And, um, you know, that's whether it be access to drivers or uh, on-track, um, you know, arguments or fights with each other, there should be, a, you know, a bit like NASCAR. NASCAR is sorted out on the track. And if you're a bad driver, well, everyone will uh, put you in the fence pretty quick, and that'll clean that up. Um, But look, I don't have the magic bullet or the the forward thinking. I've now kept out of it and haven't been thinking along these lines for a while, so I wouldn't. I'm not going to. I got much comment further than that. To be honest,
0: just a quick question. You mentioned the big race at Newcastle, and those you know, enthralling final few laps with uh, Scotty McLaughlin working his way through the field. If you were officiating that, would you have penalised him for his, uh, you know, his uh, blocking of Craig Lowndes in those final laps?
1: Well, uh, I, I would. Firstly, uh, I'm, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the rules, but the rules control it, and as my knowledge, uh, if if I'm remembering the rules, on the very last lap of of any race you're allowed to block. So uh, Scotty's manoeuvre to attempt to block Lowndes was, uh, if you like, legitimate and for Lowndes to be on a kamikaze uh, move down the inside knowing full well that he could see the track narrowing whereas uh, McLaughlin couldn't see it narrowing uh, raises, raises a few questions on who should have been penalised. Uh, I mean, if there was overlap, which uh, I think there was, Lowndes had every right to, if you like, turn right, uh, which he didn't do, which would have put uh, McLaughlin arguably in the fence. But uh, if I had the, you know, I mean, to make these decisions, you've got to know the rules off the top of your head instantly and be able to quote them, and I'm not... Uh, sure of the rules what they're running under now but I thought it was uh, a, a thing that the the show dictated the winner as opposed to the actual result I think the time needed uh, to sort thing out was quicker than they could do that before the podium and unfortunately that's life and they should never have uh, been so quick to uh, reach a conclusion on on that one but Yeah, to be honest, the the race and the championship winner was probably still fair that um, Jamie won. He made less mistakes, but on that actual incident we spoke uh, of, we're all aware of. very few drivers put their car in a Kamikaze position where you can see the roads narrowing and the other cars there. So yeah. uh, it was a pretty extreme racing, I think, uh, in my view.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was a tough one for both drivers and teams. Now, I want to get your thoughts on another series that, were ra- that was racing at Newcastle, the Touring Car Masters. Now, I've got plenty of iconic drivers competing in this series. You've got Jimmy Richards uh, and John bow a couple of drivers that you've competed against. Has there ever been any consideration of you know, perhaps setting up a team or competing in the Touring Car Masters, Larry?
1: Never. Really? <laughs> yeah, never. Look, when I retire, I used to be critical. Of, uh, I'm not, not sure that i mentioned it, but I was critical of anyone who retires and then doesn't retire, whether it be Brock or some cricketer or whatever. You either retire or you don't retire. And uh, I retired, uh, uh, and then to, I've got that many other things to do in life. Um, I don't need to... Well, on whether I should have retired, and oh, let's have a little s- sniff back at car racing again. Yeah, not me, I, I love my desert travel. I love my off-road vehicles, and and so on. And I and I still love to watch the racing. I love Formula One. I watch it. I love the V8. I watch all of that. But no, no hankering to do any. You know, I retired. I've moved on, and I'm not looking backwards. Uh, I had a great time when I was there, and uh, I'm just you know, into a, a different. New chapter.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, yeah, you, you just touched on it briefly. I was going to ask, what have you been doing? What have you been doing since retirement? Of course, you've been getting out, still keeping pretty active. Sounds like.
1: Yes, I've got a nice uh, factory, uh, a nice factory in uh, Sunshine, and we've got a few of our old cars. And I mentioned earlier, Jack uh, services a lot of uh, those with parts, etc. But I've got uh, a, a new uni I love. I've set up for you know out. Back camping, I've got my Toyota for outback camping. I've got some quad bikes and I've got uh, uh, motorbikes, and I love getting out in the deserts of whether it be the Simpson Desert or the Great Sandy Desert or the Tanami out in Western Australia, and I, I love driving around. I uh, uh, meet up with the, uh, some of the Aboriginal communities there and help me out with certain. Bits of um, you know mechanical work that that they may be deficient on, not in a formal sense, just as I as I find it. And uh, yeah, I've got very, a couple of mates who I travel with, and we're well, sometimes we do quad bike trips, might be eight, nine hundred kilometre quad bike trips from you know from Maralinga up to the Northern Territory border, and you know uh, that's what I do. It's uh, massively different to what I used to do, but uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy
0: it now yeah now I've mentioned the three car masters just before, like I said, you've driven with a whole heap of drivers, you know for you know with them uh in the same team and against them. Who was the toughest driver that you've competed against, and who was perhaps the driver that you learnt the most from
1: well uh I, I never say anyone i mean it's the first admission that you weren't very good if you had to learn from someone else so <laughs> you take the moral high ground and say it like that <laughs> straight yeah, yeah. Up. but I mean, look, the, from the day you start racing, every every lap, every corner, every passing manoeuvre, you learn something that's as simple as that. You learn uh, by someone else's mistakes. You learn by someone else's success. Uh, it's a, it's an ongoing, evolving thing. And I, I will never select uh, one driver to be, oh, he was twice as good as the other driver or whatever, uh, because it's just not the case. You do come across many, many drivers that you, you, you feel you... Um, Got your machinery better set up, or you can do a faster lap because you know when you're in close proximity, you can see their mistakes or whatever. But you know, uh, and not to address it like that, you'll never be the winner. And um, yeah, so nothing stands out, but certainly the amount of drivers I've raced against, I had as teammates. Uh, you know, the list is very long and wide, as I say, from Denny Holm Formula One World Champion, down to yeah you know, blokes uh, uh you know well, young blokes at the time russell ingle uh, you know greg Hansen, uh world class motorbike rider everyone's got uh, something to contribute to how you, you've earned your own uh, um, experiences and and moved on there. Yeah. so nothing no one special never and i never compare uh, eras, you know the the winners of uh, the early era uh, are no worse or, or different to the winners of the day. Things, and you don't you don't compare them. And uh, they're, they're both whoever's a top dog at the time. That's the top dog.
0: You touched on it just before. I want to ask, what career moment stands out above all else? You mentioned watching your son, of course, watching your son win his 1st Fiat Supercar race. What is the, the 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 highlight that stands out above all else for you, if oh. there is just one?
1: Well, I mean, it's pretty hard for me to ever forget uh, uh, when I got into Formula 1 and, and I drove a, a Formula 1 car for the first time. I mean, that, I was pretty chuffed, don't forget. I come off the farm as a windmill mechanic and I'm sitting there in uh, some folks million-pound Formula 1 car in uh, Europe and uh, we weren't quite sure how I got there. I'd never employed a PR agent in my life. I've never paid anyone a dime in in my life to have a drive. Uh, so uh, I, was, I, I know very well I've got there just on some form of raw ambition. Um, yeah, so driving a Formula One car is fantastic. To have driven on the Nurberg ring in a Formula One car, you know, flat out, flat as I could be, uh, is fantastic. Um, there's so many examples of what, uh, you yeah, know, the 20, 1988, Silk Cut Jagger Le Mans car with Tom Walkinshaw was a fantastic event uh, uh, to drive in as a driver. Um, you yeah, uh, know, yeah, I, I split my thoughts up to my European experiences and then my Australian experiences, and, uh, you know, which always focuses back on the Bathurst, uh, whether you like it or not. And uh, I'm pretty happy with the successes I've had at Bathurst and, uh I've not only ever won but I also lost one when I hit the pit lane pit entry uh, that was a a mistake or miscalculation that should never have happened you know and um, yeah so there's lots of ups and downs and positives and negatives so uh, (laughs) hard to focus on one
0: Yeah now it's been the past few months there've been a lot of people honouring your great career of course you had your son racing with your iconic Bathurst helmet. What was that like for you?
1: <laughs> well, Jack, Jack he's, uh, he picks these uh, things out himself. I was, I was totally stoked for him to do that. Uh, stoked for myself, I suppose. Uh, I didn't expect that, and uh, it looked pretty good. I, I thought, that's not a bad-looking helmet, actually. Uh, um, yeah, and the way he presented it up, uh, I thought, well, good on you, Jack. I'm, I'm wrapped it. uh you yeah, know, personally, I was quite chuffed about that, and... You know, the other things you mentioned. Um, um, yeah, every now and again you get mentioned in the, in dispatches, and I think, yeah, well, it's not that too bad.
0: Yeah, that iconic helmet design—it looks pretty good, even in this era. Where did the design come from? Was there? Did you have much say in the design of the helmet?
1: Of course, I have. Uh, everything I've ever done, I've had a hundred percent say. Uh, <laughs> now, when I started in England, uh, I wanted to have a helmet. I thought, oh, hang on, I'm only ever going to race in open wheelers, and I want to be able to see my helmet. When I'm in a crowd of cars, I want to be able to identify myself, or, or not necessarily me, but the, uh, by, by uh, my helmet. And I thought, hang on, the, yeah, I'm very familiar with what a, what a barn owl looks like from my years on the farm. And I thought, I'm going to have a bit of a barn owl look here. Uh, and that's how it started. And the green and gold is very well known uh, as Australia national colours, and uh, that's why it was green and gold.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it just got recently announced about a week or so ago that the Australian Formula One Grand Prix is going to play host of the first V8 Supercar official championship round, and the drivers are going to be competing for the inaugural Larry Perkins Trophy. Let's talk about that. What was that like for you when they you know, gave you the information that that was going to be happening?
1: Well, when I got the phone call uh, on whether I would uh, like that, uh, I, I was a bit taken back, and I uh, thought about it, and I thought, well... And as time went on, I thought about it more. I thought, that's not too bad at all. And then when the day came, I was pretty chuffed. I thought, this is is genuinely, I'm wrapped about it. I was very pleased with the players that, uh, if you like, selected me. And, um, uh, you know, the Grand Prix people and uh, the V8 uh, supercar people, uh, uh, you know, it was pretty goddamn good. And, um, yeah, to make it into uh, uh, fruition as a a fact now. uh, yeah, I'm pretty chuffed, that's for
0: sure. Larry, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Before we let you go, there's a segment that we do on our show called The Special Guest Song Request. Is there a particular song that we can get out there on the air for you today?
1: Oh, crikey. Uh, cause I'm an old buddy um, uh, countryman. Uh, a bit of buddy Holly or something like that, that'd be great. Buddy Holly? Johnny, any... Ca- I think I think yeah. Johnny Cash, actually. Johnny Cash, you know, uh, that you just find me anyone one of Johnny Cash's and that'll be
0: great. Oh, definitely. Our pleasure, Larry. Larry Perkins, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Okay, my pleasure too. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.